Good morning, everybody. If you would open your Bibles up to the passage he read, and that is going to be our text today. And we're going to take a look at one of the greatest texts in the Bible and what the implications of that text is. That is where Jesus is presented as the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, and how that in how that uh, impacted uh, those people around there, and how it's going to be played out in the rest of the Gospel of John, and uh, we'll see that. So let's pray, and we'll take a look at our passage. Okay, Father God, we come this morning in prayer, and we thank you, Lord, for this day, and. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather here to study your word. Pray that you would grant us insight and understanding. Direct me in my teaching. Help me to rightly explain your word. And pray that your people would receive that word, Father, and better live and serve you, we do pray. So, Father, we just ask this of you and pray all this. For it's in Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen. We look here at our passage. Verse 29 says, Next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the key passage right there. And so what I wanted to do was to cover the other part of the text and then go back and look at that at the end because I think it will help fit together a little better of what uh, John the writer is trying to convey about John the Baptist uh, here. He says, verse 30, he says, This is he of whom I said, after me, meaning after me is for birth order, is a man who is preferred before me. And that preferred before me means ranks higher than me. So even though he was born later, he has a higher position. And what that's a reference to is he's preexistent. He is, he is very God. That's what he's saying. He said, I did not know him. But that they should be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, on him this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And what John is conveying here is that it was through the baptism of Christ that he was re- would be revealed as the promised one of God. So if you will turn with me to the uh, third chapter of Matthew, we'll see uh, some of this played out and we'll come back to our text in John. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3 <clears throat> And we looked last week, they're trying to identify who John is. They say, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah yourself? And he says, no, I'm not any of those things. He said, I'm simply the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm the one that's preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And so it says in verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water, 
and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then you, you look at our text in John. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to read it to you. He says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. So, so this is the follow-up to the passage in Matthew, okay? All John's doing is he's picking up on the next day, whereas Matthew went back to the day before to explain what took place. And what you see in the baptism here, down here in these, the last two verses over in Matthew 3, he says, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now, a lot of people, you, a lot of times you'll see pictures that shows Jesus being baptized that shows a dove coming down on him. I don't know if it was a little form of a dove. The text says it was like a dove. So it was something that came down upon him uh, at his baptism. And then you have the Father speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What you have here is a picture of the, the triune Godhead in one place. You have the Son... You have the Spirit, and you have the Father speaking from heaven. So you see the fullness of God is revealed in this moment. But the other question that pops up on the John text, go back to John, where it says, twice in that text, verse 31, it says, I did not know him. And then in verse 33, it says, I did not know him. And so the question comes up and people ask the question, if John was cousins with Jesus, how did he not know him? How did he not know Jesus if he was his cousin? And we know for a fact that he was because when Mary conceived and she went and told Elizabeth, she was pregnant at that time with John who was six months in her womb. And it says, and the baby leaped or leapt for joy uh, the presence of, of Christ being there in his presence or whatever. And uh, so it's very clear in the womb he knew who he was. Uh, but outside the womb, he says, I don't know who he was. Is this a case of amnesia or what's going on in the life of John? I think the best way to define it is this. John had specific instructions from God that upon whom you see the Spirit of God descending like a dove, this is my promised one. John was being restricted from revealing him as Messiah until he had verification, divine verification from God. It's just all a part of God's plan and purpose. And so when John says, I did not know him, I take it to mean this. I did not know him as Messiah and I'm not going to present him as Messiah because that has not been authenticated and it will be authenticated when the Spirit of God descends on him. Because if you look at the text, he says in verse 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes the Holy Spirit. This whole thing, you got to put yourself in John's position grew up with Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ did not display any signs of openly 
miracles or anything like that until his ministry was officially started at about the age of 30. Okay? So he grew up and he lived uh, in, this, in that region, the region of Nazareth, and people knew who he was, but they knew him as the son of Joseph. He had a very uh, veiled life, if you will. Look, if you will, in Matthew 13. Go to Matthew chapter 13. And in this passage right here, uh, you will see uh, Matthew, the 13th chapter. And I want you to look at verse 54, Matthew 13 and 54. Matthew 13 and 54. And it says, And when he had come to his own country, speaking of Jesus, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Okay, now this is, this is well into his ministry. If you remember back when John or when Jesus was 12, he went into town with his parents. And it's the only recorded reference between his birth and his actual ministry beginning that you hear anything about it. So for 30 years, there's like one or two small passages that talk about the person of Christ. But it was this teaching yet again when he was in the uh, synagogue there and was teaching that the people were astonished at what he was saying, the wisdom that came forth from him. And so that's what they say here. They're, they're shocked at what he does. But this is their impression of him. Look at verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? I mean, where did a carpenter's son learn this kind of wisdom, this kind of knowledge? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, they're really approaching it from the standpoint of if he's saying all this stuff, where did he get this from? He's not a scholar. He's not one of the scribes. He hadn't been through the training of the Pharisees. What's going on here with this guy? And they're really, in a sense, trying to discredit what he says. He's just a son of a carpenter. We know his mother. We know his brothers and sisters. How come all of a sudden he pops up on the scene and does this? And, they, and so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So from the people's perspective, he was the son of a carpenter. Okay. But when this ministry begins and the spirit of God alights upon him and John identifies him as the lamb of God, the whole scenario is going to change. This whole thing is going to change. One of the things that is often brought up against him is that he didn't follow the schools of rabbinical thought. And so the religious leaders pretty much outright rejected his teaching. They viewed him as the son of a carpenter. Who is this guy? He doesn't have the credentials. He doesn't have the authority. He doesn't have the presence that these other people have. Who is this person? Well, he's the son of God is who he is. And the very book that you claim or you're surprised at him knowing, he wrote. He wrote that book. He wrote the whole thing. And so when we see this passage, John waits until he gets divine confirmation from God that he speaks to the people. 
And what does he tell them? Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now he says a lot in that one passage there, and a lot of that would be considered very radical statements in that culture and in, 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 in what took place there, okay? The first word is behold. And the word behold there, we've, had, we've broken it down before. It means to look or to perceive something. It's written in the aorist imperative. And so what it means is like this. If you were to write it out the way the word is, it'd be look, look right now and don't stop looking. Look at, look, there he is. And it's a, it's a point of exclamation, a point of focus. And, and so that's what he's doing. He's pointing their attention to him. Do not delay. Look at this man. This is the Lamb of God. Now, there's some very specific things in there when he says that. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Two distinct things there. Number one, the, meaning a definite article. The, meaning one and only. It's very similar to when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the source of all that. When, when John says, the Lamb of God, what he's saying is, the one and only Lamb of God. But the other thing interesting there is, when he says, the Lamb of God, it's not man's Lamb, it's God's Lamb. And there's a big distinction between the two there. Israel was very familiar with lambs. Lambs were a central part of their worship ceremony. Lambs and goats both were a very central part of this. And you can go back and you look all the way back in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God killed some kind of animal and put the skins on them. Now, I can't say it was a lamb. I don't know what it was. But there was an animal that was, the blood was shed from that animal and the skin was placed upon them, it said, to give them covering over their nakedness. And so they had this covering given to them. So that's one lamb for, for one people, a lamb per person. Then you will see also in the book of Exodus, if you want to look in Exodus chapter 12, you will see where God moves to one lamb per family. You have one lamb per family. Uh, beginning in verse 21 of the 12th chapter of Exodus, Exodus 12, 21, says this, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your family, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop was a common weed that grew in that area. If you've seen on the news or pictures, when they show the wall that was around the temple in Jerusalem, you'll see this grass that grows out of the side of the wall. It looks like weeds growing out of it. That's hyssop. Hyssop was a very common uh, thing that grew there. It'd be very similar to bitterweed around here. When you, in the spring, you'll see these weeds come up with little yellow flowers on them and they're a little bunch. Cut those off and let them dry. And they would use hyssop like a paintbrush. They would use it for that a lot. It was common, and it's a type of faith, meaning faith is common unto man, or all man has faith. And so the hyssop was used to apply the blood. So he says, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, 
and strike the lintel and the two doorposts. The lintel was the top part of the door. The doorposts were the sides. It's a prefigurement of the cross. You got a point here, point here, and point here. Connect the dots and what do you have? You got a cross. Did they see a cross at that time? No. But it's a type of what was going to take place. When the, when the blood is there, death will pass over, okay? So he says, you touch the uh, lentils and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door's house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land, which the Lord will give you just as he promised that you will keep this service. So it's a memorial to remember God passing over their sin. So you have one animal per person, then you got one animal per family. You go to Leviticus, when I go look at Leviticus 28 or 23, 27, you got one lamb for the nation. And what are you going to have here today? Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So you have one lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So you see how God's progressive revelation, how he expands from one to a person, one to a family, one to a nation, one to the world. It expands out. But in addition to that, Israel was very familiar with the sacrificial lamb business. Go back to Numbers 28. Numbers chapter 28, we're going to look at the requirement for lambs to be sacrificed. <clears throat> Beginning in the verse 1. Numbers 28.1. I know you probably don't do a lot of devotions over in Numbers. Pages are kind of stuck together. You may not even know where it is. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book in the Bible. Numbers 28, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offering made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year without blemish. Now this without blemish meant no physical marks on that lamb. A lamb had to have two good eyes on it. It couldn't have you know, wounds. It had to be without any external spot. And that also is an Old Testament type or typology for sin to show that the lamb is without blemish. And it's a picture of sin. So the lamb had to be without blemish or spot, okay? And then he says, um, says two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day as a regular burnt offering. One lamb you will offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. So what you have here is you're going to have two lambs offered every day for 365 days. And for the time period from when Moses gave this command to the time of Christ where he's presented as the Lamb of God, 
you're talking roughly 1,500 years. I'm rounding it off. So, you know, I know you're going to get your math and check me on that, but it's right at 1,500 years. So you take 1,500 times 365 times two, that's over a million lambs right there. So Israel had seen a lot of lambs sacrificed. Look at verse nine. Now this is a weekly offering on top of this other offering. It says, on the Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil and it's drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath. So you had two lambs added on that. So that means once a week you had these lambs on top of the previous 14 that had been offered for that week. Then verse 11, at the beginning of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. So you, you move up now, you got a daily offering, you've got a weekly offering, now you got a monthly offering, and then you have the Passover. Look at verse 17. And on the 15th day of this month is the feast Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, and on the first day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work. You shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. And then you have the sacrifice of the first fruits, verse 26. On the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs on their first year. Then you got the feast of trumpets and the tabernacles. It goes on and on and on. But you could see there are a lot of lambs that are slain. You go back and study history, and they said during the week of Passover, there could have been anywhere from 250 to a half a million lambs slaughtered during that time. Every single year on top of the normal sacrifices that took place. And every time these lambs are brought in there, they are a picture and a typology of the lamb that's going to come. Of the lamb. The Lamb of God. See, all these lambs here are lambs of man, is what they are. They're man's offering to God. And man would bring these offerings in there, and these lambs would be slaughtered. So Jesus is often pictured as the Lamb. I mean, the book of Revelation really focuses on it. John mentions it here, but there's even Old Testament passages that speak of him being a Lamb. Look in Isaiah. And look in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is a prophetic reference to the coming Messiah. And in Isaiah 53, it says this, beginning in verse 1, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus wasn't 
anything to look at. He looked like a normal person. He wasn't white with blue eyes like you see in a lot of pictures and stuff. He looked like a normal Jewish male of his day. Nothing that would stand out, okay? Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The significance of that passage right there is when they would go to these temples and they would put their hands on these animals, it was a picture of their iniquity or their sin being put on that animal, and that animal will die in their place. In this passage, God says through Isaiah, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He bore our sin is what he's saying. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led, here it is, as a lamb to the slaughter. It is a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. And it goes on and on to give a, a picture of him. But this also surfaces again in the scripture in Acts chapter 8. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 8, this is the story of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 26, Acts 8, 26. It says, now, Acts 8, 26. It says, now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert. So Philip is getting directions on where to go. And it always amazes me in the Bible how they can get these directions. He said, You just go down here on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, go out in the wilderness, and you're going to find a chariot. I mean, we got GPS, Google, we got all this stuff nowadays to find our way, and he just gets some vague description. Go down this road, travel down this way, and you're going to find a certain thing. What's he going to find? So he arose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So this is obviously, he's, he's a believer in the sense of the Jewish law and the Jewish books. He's coming to worship and it says, and he was returning, he's going back to Egypt. He was sitting in his chariot and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him. I can see Philip running down the road trying to catch this chariot and he catches the chariot and old Ethiopian looks at him and uh, it says, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you're reading? 
And he says, how can I understand or how can I unless somebody guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shears, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. See, Jesus is the lamb. He is the lamb that is prophesied to take away man's sin. So we go back to John and we see what John says. John says, behold, the lamb of God. This is not man's lamb. This is God's lamb that God has sent for his people. Now note something else in this text. He says, behold, put your eyes on, focus on the lamb of God, the lamb sent by God, the one and only lamb, the unique lamb of God. And he says two other very profound things. Number one, he says, who takes away the sin and number two of the world. Okay, two things there. Let's look at those. Number one, what is the significance of the Lamb of God who takes away sin? Well, understand this, folks, that in the Old Testament, all could be done with sin would be sin would be covered. Okay, look with me if you would, uh, or turn over if you would, to the to Psalm 32, and we'll see a specific passage on it. Well, I'll just read it to you. Psalm 32, one says, "Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile." What's that saying? In the Old Testament economy, all that could happen with the sacrifice of an animal was sin could be covered. That enabled man to have fellowship or relationship with God as far as day-to-day -day fellowship, okay? He could come into God's presence. Why? His sin was covered. The significance of it is this. He didn't take that sin away. The sin was covered, but man still had the guilt of that sin. Follow me? He still had the guilt of that sin in his life. And so he remembered that sin. The difference between that and the New Testament is, in the New Testament, God takes away our sin. Look with me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. And we'll, we'll follow this through in this passage. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. You'll see the difference here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come. What does that mean? Remember, I told you before, the law is the revelation of God. It reveals the righteous character of God, but the law condemns us. The law shows us where we fall short with God, and it doesn't bring life. It brings condemnation. The law is good because it's a revelation of God, but it's only giving you a part of the picture. All the law does, it says, this is who God is. This is what God's standard is. You don't measure up to this standard. And so the, 
The outtake on that is, woe is me, because the law will crush you. Jesus takes the law even further. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. You have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if you have anger or hatred towards your brother without cause, you're guilty of it too. And so he takes it through internal, takes it to a completely different level. And so the law is a shadow. It's, a, it's, it's giving you a glimpse of what is going to come. And what is going to come is the one that wrote the law and is going to fulfill the law and is going to give us his righteousness, not based on anything we've done. Okay? So the law is a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Why? All they can do is cover their sin. That's all they can do on the Old Testament, just cover their sin and enable you to come before God. But you, but it, you got to redo it every time. You saw the sacrifice. One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening. One lamb at the first of the week. Seven lambs monthly. It just goes on and on and on and on. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. You remember also in the temple and in the tabernacle, there was no chair for the priest. And the idea is their work is never done. It is just continually sacrificed. And why? Because sin is always there. They're always having to deal with sin. So these priests work over and over and over. It says, four, verse two, then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purged would have no more consciousness of sin. See, if your sin is removed, then what does it do? It takes the guilt with it, okay? It takes your guilt away. You cannot be purged with the animal sacrifice. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And this is very important, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. You can't take away sin. All you can do is cover sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, who is he? Christ. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Amen. First covenant is gone. Second one is established, okay? But this man, oh, I'm sorry. Verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, one sacrifice, one lamb, all sin. Taken care of. It's dealt with. And every priest, here you go, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. 
priests never could sit down in, in the temple. It was always sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. All right. But this man, here's the contract. Compare Jesus to the priest. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Amen. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't cover it. He takes it away. That word takes away means to be lifted up. Uh, the word I wrote means to lift up, to carry away, to not cover something, but to remove. Sin, harmatia, means to miss the mark. The best biblical definition for sin, harmatia, means that God has a target, there's a bullseye, you're shooting for the bullseye, what's the bullseye? The moral perfection of God, the perfect holiness of God, and man misses the mark. Man misses the mark. We do not measure up to God's standard. We don't, simply. Now, there may be a few things you hadn't, hadn't done before, but that's meaningless. All you have to do is one sin to be separated from God forever. One sin. That's it. One single sin. And so the idea behind it is this. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What's the significance of world? Significance of world is this, folks. Up until this point, it was just the Jew. No one even really considered the Gentile. But when Jesus comes, he's, he doesn't just take away the sin of the Jew. He takes away the sin of the world. And the Gentiles had not even been in the covenant with God. They were separated. They were apart from that. They did not participate in that. Look at uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, uh, verse 19, I'm sorry, John 4, 19. It says, the woman said to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship or we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And what that means is Salvation came through the Jews, okay? God selected the Jews and it was through the Jews he worked out his plan and it was through the Jews that he brought the person of Jesus Christ and all the, 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 I, the law and everything pertaining to God. Look in Romans 3. We see another reference to it. Romans chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, uh, Beginning in verse one, it says this. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. See, the, the Jews had the law. They had all the, the, the revealed revelation of God's righteousness and holiness. So they had an advantage in that sense. But God said they were just simply the ones that maintained it. 
secured it, kept it pure. And what's God going to do in the person of Christ? He's going to expand that. He's going to blow it out from the Jew to the world. Look at Romans 1 verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as is written, the just shall live by faith. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So see, it's not the, just the Jews, now it's the whole world. So when John the Baptist, folks, is standing there and he makes this statement and he's making it in front of the religious leaders, he says, behold, get your eyes off these religious guys and look at the lamb. Look at this lamb right here. This is the lamb, the one and only lamb. And it is a lamb sent from God and he's not going to cover sin. He's going to take sin away. And he's going to do it just for the Jews. He's doing it for the whole world. That was a radical statement in that day and time. And I promise you, when those people left that place, there was a lot of conversations going on. Who does this guy think he is bringing this carpenter's son out here and claiming this carpenter's son is the Lamb of God is going to take away the sin in the world? They, they thought both Jesus and John were demon possessed. They thought they were crazy. They thought they'd flip the wig. They didn't know what was going on with these two clowns out here in the desert. What's going on with these guys? Who do they think they are? Well, brother, you're going to find out. One of them's a messenger and one of, the other one's a very God that you know nothing about. And Jesus tells them that. He says, you are of your father, the devil, but I'm of God. And he constantly relays that message. But what a radical statement. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Folks, that's as exclusive as you can get right there. People talk about other passages. That passage right there, it sets the stage that there is one Lamb. And that one Lamb takes away the sin of the world. And that one Lamb is the one sent from God, the one and only one. That is your only hope. And that's very clear in salvation, folks. Your only hope is the Lamb of God because He takes away the sin of the world. Not like Old Testament lambs that covered sin. This, this Lamb takes sin away, removes sin out of the way. Takes it out of the way completely. And then what did He do? Set down at the right hand of the Father. Now understand this, God doesn't have a right hand because He's a spirit. He doesn't have form. We saw that last time. He doesn't have form. So you can't see God. He doesn't have form. He doesn't have shape. Therefore, he doesn't have a right hand. So how can you sit down at the right hand of God? The right hand of God means the place of highest honor. And that's what it means. When Christ laid down his life and sat down at the right hand of God, it is finished. And he is the most honored one in the bunch there. That's what he's talking about. Your only hope with God is the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your gift of salvation, for your lamb, for your provision, for all that you've done, dear God. We thank you so much for that. We're so grateful to you for it. Father, I pray that if there's one here today that's never trusted in that lamb, they would today. They would look to the lamb for salvation, Lord, for forgiveness. And Father, we thank you for your plan and your purpose. So Father, our prayer is that we would follow you in obedience, that we would 
lay aside those things that cause us to stumble and fall and pursue you with a pure heart. That we'd love you with all our heart, mind, and soul. And we'd love our neighbor as ourselves, Father. Let us be found faithful in this. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.